The ace, Kevin Gosman. Not as acey as usual, but nonetheless, Blue Jays get a big win. One of many that they need ahead. Uh, let's chat with Show Ali, Blue Jays broadcaster at Sportsnet 590. The fan, how's it going this morning, Show? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're good. I want to say I respect the post-game fielding of the fan base text line that you do in Jays Talk after games because it is... I go in there sometimes just to see, and it's sometimes just toxic, toxic. But you do a really good job. <laughs> she craves the I toxicity. go in there, and I'm like, what are people talking about? And show, <laughs> you just do a really good job at fielding the various emotions um, on this roller ca- coaster of Blue Jays' season. Uh, but, you know, last night, a positive one in a sense, right? Blue Jays win. But where's your biggest point of confidence that that is going to be the Blue Jays baseball or the Blue Jays result, at least, that we're going to see more often than not in the next 30 games? I think uh, and you're right when you say that uh, perhaps Kevin Gosman hasn't been as uh, acey as uh, as he usually it's a real has word. been. But <laughs> he, I know it's you know what I like it. I'm gonna I might steal that for the next Feel time free. I do a, a Gosman Jace talk. But uh, I, I do uh, I, I I'm not concerned about Kevin Gosman, and he probably is the only guy I have even like a an eyebrow raise about because the pitching has still been. Pretty darn good. The bullpen locked it down once he left the game yesterday. You know the uh, the defense has still been pretty darn good. You still see some errors from he- from here and here and there, but not as many as you might see on other teams. And the offense does kind of look like it's waking up. Like you are getting a little bit more from. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., David Schneider, who who I don't know if we ever thought David Schneider would be this big a contributor this late in the season, but he is also holding up his end of the bargain. And again, I don't know that anyone thought that with Schneider at third base and Ernie Clement at short over Bo Bichette because he's injured right now, I don't know that anyone would have had the Blue Jays scoring eight runs, the lineup that featured both of those guys, if we had had this discussion at the beginning of the year. But, hey, I mean, as long as they're they're doing it against the teams that have the team ERAs that are, like, in literally the bottom four in the league when it comes to this stretch of 12 games starting with uh, the Nationals game last night, then it, it feels as though they can at least continue to eke out some more victories because it'll probably take more than 90 wins to make the playoffs this year, it, it feels like. So... Here's hoping they can pick up some more wins, you know, in this in this quote unquote easier stretch here. Yeah, it does seem like David Schneider is going to be of utmost importance, especially with uh, Bo Bichette and Matt Chapman not available right now. And we don't know how long uh, their absences are going to last. I do want to circle back to Gosman, though, because we're hearing sort of the same things in the postgame now. It seems like after every Gosman start, which is, hey, that splitter's not carrying the zone and what that does for his outlook on the mound where he has to pound in fastballs because he's not not able to disguise that splitter in the way that he wants to. Uh, I do worry. I, I, I frankly do worry. Uh, I worry that the best pitching is behind the Blue Jays, and I, I worry that that's uh, first and foremost because Kevin Gosman may be hitting a wall here, and I think some irony, and I wonder if you pick up on this at all, is that, yeah, he hits like a longevity milestone with 200 strikeouts last night, Uh, But it seems like he did it in the process of fading on the season with an ERA above four this month. You know, you said you were kind of glass half full on it. What gives you confidence that, you know, the splitter starts carrying the zone and he he has the full arsenal for the final month of the season and into the playoffs if they get there? I I admit, Justin, it is partly looking back a little bit 
even towards the last couple of years, because I remember last year, I'll, I always remember his his uh, pretty frank conversation, which I th- I'm pretty sure it was shy. Like it was one, another one of the post game chats he was having with the Blue Jays beat. It might have been on the road, but uh, he was he was chatting with the the various people who were around him, and I'm like reasonably certain it was shy who asked him like this exact question, like the splitter, not not as much life on the splitter. How are you feeling about? The other pitches in your arsenal, you have to use the fastball a little bit more. The other off-speed, non-splitter, breaking pitches, you got to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And I remember he kind of just looked at Shy and was like, "It's August, Shy. Come on, pal." And then, and then I, I remember kind of chuckling because after that game, he he definitely was able to rear back and find it a little more. And I remember listening to the post game last night with Blair and Barker and and hearing him discuss the idea about. Fatigue, and he used the word. I want to say he used the words "stressful pitches." Like the Blue Jays pitching staff, and I think he was including the bullpen in this. But he, they, talking about throwing a lot of stressful pitches, and and I, it does kind of feel like, to a certain degree, it is code for "Hey, get me some more run support." Because to, last night was probably the most run support he's had in like feels like six weeks, probably. So I uh, I, I do agree that that it, it, the splitter has not been fooling guys as much as it has been. They have been laying off the splitter, which obviously is his most deadly pitch uh, quite often. But at the same time, I, I do feel like based on the last couple of years, he's gotten like he's gotten over it, over that like kind of wall, broken down that wall a little bit more frequently. So I, I would think that even if the ERA is a little bit more elevated and maybe even if he is no longer, he pr- actually probably is still the number two AL Cy Young candidate behind Garrett Cole, even if there is a bit of a gap between let's say, Garrett Cole and Kevin Gossman for that Cy Young Award, even if he might not be the Cy Young candidate at the very end of the season, if he, even if he is going to make like four or five more starts between now and the end of the regular season, I, I do have faith enough that if you are discussing putting Gossman out there to backstop the Blue Jays to another you know three-run performance, I think that I'd probably take that, especially knowing that the defense behind him and the bullpen behind him even more so is going to be able to, to shut the door more often than not. Yeah, ERA in the fours, uh, just barely for Kevin Gosman last September. Of course, he gave up four earned uh, in five and two thirds in the playoff loss uh, to Seattle. So, I, I, you know, there might not be reason to be freaking out, pulling out the hair, uh, but his best months usually come early or at least in the last two years, uh, earlier on June, May, that's when he seems to be at his best. And that feels like it's natural, right? It is a long season. They were asked, and he mentioned it last night, that they are they have been asked to do a lot this year because Alec Manoa could not give them starts, and they went down to a four-man rotation, and just a lot has been asked of this, uh, this starting rotation this year because they've been so good, but because of other things as well. I wonder, it's too early to talk about next year, but I'm going to do it anyway. Should this team just endeavor to be a six-man rotation, given that they have are really, really, they have a lot of talent, but it is aging talent. And if you're protecting assets and you're putting people in their best position to win, should the Blue Jays not be progressive here and look to just run out more next season to ensure that everyone can pace themselves accordingly? I mean, it wouldn't. It was not the worst idea, if only because they they are at the very least already have someone who, in theory, could be that sixth man when it comes to Hyunjin Ryu, right? I mean, I think we all. I remember, I remember the three of us had a conversation a little bit closer to the trade deadline about, hey, like, would 
Will, will Ryu's addition to this team, even though he's been on the team for a number of years now, will his addition be the big trade, quote-unquote, addition that the team was looking for at the deadline? And, and I remember kind of thinking, like, uh, you know what, it's very possible, but I don't know if we want to put all our eggs in the Ryu basket. Coming off of TJ surgery, he's 36 years old, a lot of, a lot of mileage on that left arm of his. And you know what, Hyunjin Ryu has been one of the Blue Jays' best pitchers since the all, since perhaps the All-Star break, certainly since the trade deadline. And uh, you know he's been, he's been phenomenal, the changeup looks really good, the curve looks really good. And you're right, not knowing what you are going to get from Alec Manoa, certainly for the rest of this season, because maybe, maybe he gets called back up if the or when the rosters expand in September, which is only in a couple of days, or maybe if they leave him down for the rest of 2023 and you don't call him back up until 2024, not knowing what you're going to get from him, certainly not only physically, but also perhaps emotionally or mentally as well, maybe maybe it is worthwhile having a, a six-man rotation. Having said that, it, it does kind of feel like, based on some of the conversations I've heard people having around the clubhouse, it, it doesn't really feel like... He, he's he. It doesn't sound like Ryu is done a hundred percent, but it does kind of feel like perhaps that if he does play in Major League Baseball next year and perhaps doesn't go back to the KBO, it'll be on a one-year deal and probably will be on a team that needs more pitching depth than the Blue Jays. But ha- having said that, being able to stretch it out a little bit to ensure guys like Gosman are, are a little bit more rested isn't a bad idea, but it is kind of funny to think the Blue Jays have their rotation, you would think, largely set for 2024 behind Gosman, Barrios, who's pitching tonight, Bassett, and you would think also Yusei Kikuchi, who's been nothing short of phenomenal this year. Chatting with Shoah Lee, Blue Jays broadcaster, Sports Senate 590, the fan. Um, okay, so positives. Babe Schneider, are you part of the Babe Schneider hive? And uh, he's basically earned himself a, a role down the stretch with the Blue Jays, especially if uh, Matt Chapman and maybe Bo would be out for a little while longer. Oh, yeah, man. I, I love watching Babe Schneider play. Like, she's so much fun. I, I actually think there was a moment, I think it was a second AB of the game yesterday, because I think he worked a walk in his first appearance, and then he, he had the, the a longer AB by pitch count for the opposing pitcher. And again, I, I, I do know it's the Nationals, so perhaps that is always a caveat, but at the same time, Schneider is 24 years old. He's still pretty young. He was hitting cleanup yesterday after batting fifth a couple times against Cleveland this weekend, but... I, I really do think that might have been his best A-B of the entire season. He was taking pitches. He was seeing them, some of the high fastballs that he has said very publicly he has struggled with. He was seeing some borderline calls right on the edge of the strike zone, which, again, has not been super consistent for either teams. And, they were again, they were facing a team that was throwing the ball outside of the strike zone a lot. So he was he was very patient. He was letting uh, bat, the pitcher come to him. And that that's something that I, I feel like we haven't seen a lot of the Blue Jays batters do a ton this year, which is work pitch counts really deep. Like You sometimes see Whit Merrifield do that. Sometimes you see Danny Jansen do that. And and I, I, I admit I wasn't really expecting David Schneider, who is, again, a, a younger guy, still a major league caliber hitter, of course. But I, sometimes it takes a little, a little while for this to be worked into young guys' heads in terms of how to approach things at the plate. And for, for a guy who's only 24, it's a very mature approach at the plate. So I got to say, I think that was one of the more impressive things I've seen him do, given that we've already seen him knock out a couple of home runs and work a lot of walks and runs and so on. But I, I love watching him play. We're definitely at the point now, Ailish, where he's got to be playing every day, right? Like more oh, yeah. so with Chapman and Bo on the IL. But like he, he can't not play at the very least for the next like 
15 days, I would think every single day because, I mean, the lineup has got to be more malleable the closer you get to the end of the regular season, and he's provided you the best chance to win so far, I would think. Maybe the return of uh, Babe Schneider to lineup is helping Vladdy a little bit with his approach. I know you mentioned his name a little earlier, but are you seeing something different about Vlad that might be sustainable? We will talk to Carlos Pena at 8 o'clock, who knows uh, the Vlad approach quite well, but what are you seeing in terms of Vlad over this last stretch um, of last weekend and into yesterday's game? Well, Vlad is certainly still, uh, he loves to swing at the first pitch. I swear yes. there's no there's no batter in all of baseball <laughs> who loves to swing at the first pitch more than Vladdy. To his credit, it does often work out for him. Like, he's still batting like near 400 when he swings at the first pitch, which obviously is very good. So I, I, if it keeps working out for him, he's going to keep doing it. He, I think over the last seven games specifically, he has an OPS of almost 900. And of course, he's hit a number of home runs against Cleveland. He had another, not a home run last night, but the, the very hard hit double off the base of the wall knocked in a couple of runs so I, clearly things are starting to turn for him a little bit and again I, th- I think we you do have to see it happen a little bit more to feel like you're comfortable in saying he's in a hot streak or to feel comfortable he's saying he is quote-unquote back but I feel like I've seen more vintage Vladdy in the past let's say yeah, I guess four games, going back as last night plus the three games against the Guardians. So the last four games for Vladdy, I've seen more positive things certainly than we have seen before. And again, I mean, I know some people weren't super pleased with swinging away against Emmanuel Classe in the in extra innings uh, on on Sunday. But And yesterday, I'm sure there were some things that people didn't love as well, again, the first pitch stuff. But I, I, I feel like, again, it's... If he's putting the ball in the air more, he has so much power that even a mediocre swing from him could get the ball to the warning track. So I, I do want to see it happen a couple more times against these pitching staffs that are at or near the bottom of the league in terms of team ERA. But if he's still doing it come the end of this national series, it'll be hard-pressed to, I think for any of us, to deny that he is in the middle of a, of a, of a pretty much-needed hot streak. Uh, also on a decent little streak, George Springer, five hits in his last four games, two home runs. He returns to the leadoff spot uh, last night. And Ben Wagner uh, said on Blair and Barker yesterday that they're not going to move him around anymore. George Springer is once again, once again, rather, the leadoff hitter. It is Springer season. Is leadoff the best spot for George Springer? You know, I don't. I don't mind it honestly. I, I was definitely a part of the the move Springer out of the leadoff spot uh, bandwagon, Justin, earlier in the year when he was going through that massive uh, slump, or when he went like over thirty five. But uh, you know what? He like you said, he has been swinging it much better. He is uh, has been a little bit less aggressive, which is nice. You're not seeing him put the ball on the ground as much anymore. And even last night, I feel like he was even if he, he played pretty well, and he probably was actually still a little bit unlucky when he like I think he laced the ball directly to the third baseman, where if he if he hits that ball maybe a foot in either direction. He's scoring a couple of runs there. So, again, even some, even with bad luck, perhaps biting Springer last night, he's still been playing pretty well. And and this, I would say that applies to a lot of the games over the past uh, maybe week or two. So I, I, I think I'm pr- pretty supportive of Springer batting leadoff. We know he has the comfortability factor in terms of uh, staying in the leadoff spot. It doesn't necessarily mean that Whit Merrifield has, is, has become redundant or not important. But because no Bo Bichette, and we've seen that Bo has taken some reps in the leadoff spot, I think you do need need one of your better leadoff hitters and I think Whit Merrifield has been going through 
Yeah, a little bit of a slump, at least compared to the two or three or four hit wit that we had been seeing over the course of much of the season dating back to, let's say, Canada Day. So if Witt is slumping a little bit, then I think you got to put George back on top the uh, the lineup. And like Ben said yesterday, it doesn't sound like they're moving George out of the leadoff spot for the rest of the year, barring, I'm sure, some kind of injury. But if everyone's healthy, then I have I don't know a real problem with Springer being atop there because... It, it certainly seems to galvanize him a little bit more. And if you can put Springer at the top and you can have, let's say, Belt, Vladdy, and then whoever you want in the cleanup spot, whether it continues to be Davis Schneider, may, maybe a Dalton Varsho or a Matt Chapman when he comes back off the IL, maybe some of these guys can pick up what they're, where they've been leaving off. But uh, perhaps if, if those are your top three, you could do a lot worse than having Springer atop the order. Is Danny Jansen getting enough love for his season? Oh, boy. Probably not, eh? Which is, isn't that crazy? It's crazy that he, I feel like, I think he said, what, career-high 16 home runs. He's around 50 ribbies. I mean, the guy's also a ball magnet. Get hits by a pitch. It feels like every like every second game or every third game, whenever he's in there, it's, it's pretty insane. But Danny Jansen is one of the more underrated parts of this lineup. You know, I, I remember I was talking on Jay's Talk a couple of weeks ago about, like, what it would cost to lock up Jano long-term. And I remember, I, I think I kind of settled on the idea of you you kind of start with the framework of the Sean Murphy deal that he signed when he came over to the Atlanta Braves. So I think he signed like a six-year, maybe $65, 70000000 million deal. And so if you, and Jano, I think, is a, a year older than Sean Murphy. So may, maybe you take off like, like five to ten million dollars of that deal, but I, I, I kind of wonder what, what you guys think. Like, if you were to lock up Jano long term at his current age, and you're paying the guy, let's say, a five year deal, and the deal is like ten to twelve million dollars a year, that sounds about right to me. But I'm curious what you think. I mean, I want Danny Jansen here as long as we can. He's I feel so underrated and like MVP, and I think the clubhouse loves him too, right? Like, I think he's an integral part of this team. Um, Integral. Feels like a it feels like a catcher you can win a World Series with. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. not I'm not saying he's like going to, you know, be the leader offensively and he's going to be the guy that you're gonna hang every hat on. But I do feel like when I watch him that he has that ability, that he has that upside. And I don't think that every catcher has that, right? Like I, I think there are some guys like Maldonado in Houston, like there's nothing about it that gets you that excited, but it's the type of guy that you have confidence in to do that job for a ace pitching staff, which the Houston Astros have had forever. And I don't know if uh, like, there, I don't know if there's anything that connects those two, but there are some guys where you just look at him like he has it. You could win with that guy. And I do mm-hmm. feel that with Danny Jansen. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not sure Jana will ever necessarily be, like a, an Adley Rutschman, which is it's a tough comparison anyway. No, yeah, you're not going to be Rutschman, but it, it, you, if you have that offense where he doesn't need to be Rutschman, mm. he, he can be that guy that you depend on for sure. Yeah, exactly. Like the the it's it's there's some things that being a catcher too. It's hard to like necessarily quantify beyond his offensive production and certainly like the 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 pitch framing stuff, the game calling stuff. But especially on the game calling aspect, he definitely seems to have 
somewhat of a, a calming presence for some of the for a lot of the pitchers mm-hmm. on the on the behind the plate, I should say, when they're on the mound. Because I remember last year when he when he had the injury and he was out for such a long period of time with the he had the fractured finger and he had the oblique injury and so on. And I, I remember there was a lot of conversations like Joe Siddle, of course, a former catcher, had this convo. Uh, Buck Martinez, another former mm-hmm. catcher, Caleb Joseph. We have a lot of catchers. Yeah, I guess Sportsnet. if you want to be a broadcaster, <laughs> you should be a catcher. <laughs> Apparently, maybe Jano is broadcasting in his future. Who knows? But uh, I, I, I remember all of them to a person basically saying that Jan- Jansen has an ability to go out and not only call a game, but to really to know when to walk out from the from behind the plate to the mound, to give his pitcher a breather, to uh, to know which pitches to call on the pitch comm device, like all all the things you want in your catcher. And then on top of that, offensively, he's able to pull the ball with uh, with frightening uh, consistency to left field, and he does it so often. And that's exactly what he did last night with an absolute missile into the into the second deck. So yeah, I I, I do agree. I mean, he may not offensively ever be like a top three catcher, but if you're offensively living as like a top seven to ten catcher, then I mean that's a pretty good place to be and that's before you count let's say you hope what, what will eventually be the eventual uh the come up let's call it for alejandro kirk gamer qualities and danny jansen okay looking uh forward here in the immediate term uh this national series it's got to be a sweep right oh gosh i know like you, you look at the teams on the docket it's nationals Rockies, A's, Royals. And, I mean, they've got to be, at this point, given that it was a relatively disappointing series against the Guardians, it was one and two against the Guardians. And I think it was Buck, again, who had said to Blair on Friday that, you know, it was it was going to be a 12-3 and three stretch that's what's needed. And, again, let's say that is is what's needed. Then you already get basically give away two of those three losses to the Guardians, games that you definitely should have won. So now you kind of put yourself in a hole where if that is what's needed, you need you can only really lose one game in the next what tw- like ten games essentially. That's a that's a tall order for any team, even if it is against quote unquote subpar competition because the because of the way baseball just is on any given night in terms of the sheer chaos and and randomness that can happen. So yeah, I kind of agree. Like they kind of do have to sweep the Nationals, especially when the pitchers you're putting forward. Against the Nats are we got Gosman yesterday. Thankfully, mm-hmm. they won that game. But you're going to get Barrios tonight, and I think Bassett tomorrow. So if, if Barrios and Bassett are on the mound, two guys that have been, I, I think, lar- for the most part, in large part, pretty consistent over the course of the entire regular season, especially for Jose Barrios. Like, if today is not a win, I th- especially with the way the bullpen has been pitching as well, if today is not a win, then I think that's a v- huge disappointment. Frankly, the same goes for Bassett. The same would go for a Ryu start, and the same would go for a Kikuchi start, <laughs> because all of them have been pitching so well. So, yeah, it's true. Like, you, you basically expect wins over the next, like, five games. And, I mean, the Nationals are not great. The the Rockies are okay, but you're also playing the Rockies uh, at Coors Field where you would expect an offense at the Blue Jays to be able to take advantage of things. So, yeah, I, 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 I kind of feel like, Justin, it is a must-win. How hard is that going to be if Bo Bichette's MRI comes back uh, less than favorable? Um, he's currently considered day-to-day, but they're going to undergo this MRI to determine full extent of his injury. Uh, where's your concern level with Bo or just something that they're going to do to give a little bit of uh, clarity on the situation? 
Yeah, I, I meant quad injuries always kind of freak me out a little mm. bit just because it feels like those are the kinds of things that can can linger deeper than just, you know, the amount of time the Blue Jays have. Like They literally only have, what, like 30 days or mm-hmm. 31 days or whatever it is. October 1st is the end of the regular season, so maybe just a smidge over that. But because they only have a handful of days between now and the end of the regular season in terms of games played and only a handful of days off to boot, it, just, it does kind of feel like if Bo is out for any appreciable length of time, the uh, the playoff run for the Jays will be in jeopardy. I mean, it's such a cliche, guys, but the, the cliche, cliches usually have some grain of truth to them in that your big bats need to be your big bats. Mm-hmm. And if arguably your best offensive player, certainly based on what we have seen on the balance of the entire of the 2023 season, then you don't have Bo Bichette, your best player, and he's been, I would say, pretty darn good defensively, if not elite defensively. He's been good so far this season. Then it does make me kind of worried in terms of not just not having Bo's offensive capabilities, but also whoever they put out there at short has to do a pretty good job. Like Ernie Clement, I think, acquitted himself pretty good yesterday, but mm-hmm. I don't know if Ernie Clement is necessarily going to be the everyday shortstop. I mean, I don't know that their team necessarily even has an everyday shortstop now that Bo potentially might not see a ton of playing time. Again, you hope it's not serious, and John Schneider didn't sound overly concerned, but mm-hmm. I will also say John Schneider has never really sounded overly concerned <laughs> about literally anything. Thing. So I'm not going to put too much stock into that until we actually get uh, a result on the MRI. That's true. It's always about the little things with John Schneider. So yeah. maybe the little thing was just getting peace of mind on Bo's uh, quad. Uh, show, appreciate you jumping on. Keep killing it as always. And we'll definitely chat with you soon. Yeah, you guys are the best. Anytime. Thanks so much. That's Show Ali, Blue Jays uh, broadcaster at Sportsnet 590. The fan, you hear him lots on our station doing a wonderful job. But yes, of course, the Bo Bichette news, uh, we're all waiting anxiously to find out uh, about the status of that MRI. We did the kinesiology yesterday, how the quad mm. is connected to the knee. Confirmed. That is correct. Pretty important. Structurally, so yeah. we shall see, um, but not seeing Bo Bichette in the lineup would be pretty devastating to the chances uh, for the Blue Jays as they scratch and claw towards a wild card spot. And you already don't have Matt Chapman for a little bit. Swanson's out. Uh, hopefully the injury bug stops there. Yeah, it was one of the worst uh, gym mishaps going there with Matt Chapman. That thing was... I uh, honestly, he must have squashed his finger. <laughs> like <laughs> He's lifting 200-pound yeah. dumbbells just crunching his finger. Yeah, they need those guys back. Like, uh, listen, the Ernie Clement thing could go well for a bit. The Davis Schneider thing could mm-hmm. be a thing. But, uh, you know, you can't rely on those two to get you through, I don't think. Like, they need these guys back. I, I know it hasn't been a great season offensively for Matt Chapman, or at least since, you know, the start of the season. Uh, Bo Bichette, I mean, you can't understate his, abort- his importance, but they need these guys back. It's it's the reality. All right, so more to come today. I'm sure we'll get the update on Bo Bichette sometime, and you'll hear it on our station. Um, but let's chat about... Nathan Rourke. It's time for something to chew on. Brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. Oh, kind of sad. But uh, Canadian hero Nathan Rourke's uh, tenure with the Jacksonville Jaguars is reportedly coming to an end. Uh, 25-year-old quarterback waved by the Jags on Monday as a part of the team's roster cuts. He had a pretty Great preseason. Like, I don't know what else you're expecting from him. Um, One of the few viral a, things we yeah, saw was went, his big play versus I think he went Dallas, viral once or twice. Yeah. Viral for sure the first time. And then I think people were keeping an eye on him and he made another great touchdown or another, another great pass that went semi-viral mm. the second time around. 
Um, obviously, we took the CFL by storm last season. We had excitement looking at his NFL prospect, but maybe he gets a chance to return to the practice squad or somebody else picks him up. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't feel like a, like a nightmare scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels maybe more akin to like, hey, Joseph Wall, like what would happen to him if goes through waivers? Like, I don't know. It's just like a third goalie type of vibe where I think they want him around, but maybe they're protecting another asset. Uh, it's funny, though, because there's so many quarterbacks in the league that you're just like, how do you still have a job? <laughs> and then Nathan Rourke shows yeah, up, to, lights the great. world on fire. Uh, and then he's the one that has to go through, you know, the waving process or practice squad process. That's probably where they want him. They, probably Jacksonville wants him on the practice squad and they're trying to get him there. But it just may mean he might end up somewhere else. I just hope he doesn't get yo-yoed into oblivion here. Yo-yoed. and He can actually you know, settle in with a team and mm-hmm. hold the clipboard for someone and maybe get a chance at some point this season. All right. Uh, NFL right around the corner. Looking forward to that. Uh, we have our draft on Sunday for our fantasy football league. You will be somewhere in Europe. So are you going to be able to do that? I'll figure it away. We'll see. Are you not going to auto draft? No, I'll try not to. Okay. Yeah, Justin's off starting tomorrow for mm-hmm. a little extended vacay. A little extended? Yeah, you got a couple weeks off. Yeah, I know. It's exciting. It is exciting. Um, but you don't You'll hold the, it down. Don't forget the draft because I don't want to hear that excuse forever that, oh, I was auto-draft. That's why I lost. No, I'll figure okay, it out a way. Good. Okay, good. Um, let's take a break because we're going to get back into TFC, Herdman, and Canada soccer with Oliver Platt, one soccer analyst on the other side of the break on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 5.9 The Fan. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, the big news in Toronto sports was John Herdman's move from the Canadian national team to TFC. Begins October 1. Some time to sort out what's going on behind the scenes over there at TFC, uh, but definitely big, big news uh, and worth diving into a little bit more. We spent some time talking about it in the first hour. We'll send, spend some time talking about it in the second hour with our next guest, Oliver Platt of One Soccer. Uh, good morning, Oliver. Thanks for jumping on with us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I don't want to ask you about, you know, your impression yesterday because this, this is something that's been, like, long rumored. John Herdman's move to TFC. Uh, but when you first heard about this idea, uh, what came into your mind first? Because it might, like, that might be how you view things, right? Like, what does it mean for TFC? What does it mean for Canada soccer? What was your first thought when this idea first entered your consciousness? I thought it made a, a degree of sense, to be honest with you. Um, you know, from a, from a Canada perspective, it feels like it's been building for most of the year now. Uh, there were pretty serious, incredible links to uh, to the New Zealand national team job earlier in the year that John Herdman had gone quite down, quite far down the path in terms of discussing that job. I think when you listen to, to some of his comments over the summer, it was clear that there was a level of frustration with how things were going with Canada, with his level of kind of belief that he could take the, through, the team through, which was well, a long period, right? Three years to, to the 2026 World Cup. He's already been here five and a half years. It's a very long stint. And then from Toronto FC's perspective, I think it's clear that there's major culture issues at that club, right? Major issues with with players off the pitch, with the kind of the togetherness and the commitment of the group, a lot of fallings out and, you know, negative headlines coming out of the training ground and things of that nature. And that's always been Herdman's specialty, is, is culture building and, and a reset at times. I think he brought that to Canada when he first came in. 
Um, and so on both sides, there was kind of a fit that, that made sense there. And maybe from, from the Canadian perspective, uh, as much as it is difficult to see John Herdman go, I think it's probably not the worst time to, to have a fresh face in and make a change. So if we're talking about changes to uh, his reality, uh, for John Herdman, I think the, the one word would be resources. He's going to have resources, whether it's money or players or time or whatever. He's going to have them with TFC because there are less restraints on TFC than there are with Canada soccer. So I guess the question is, if there were sufficient resources with Canada soccer, would Herdman still be coaching the national team? Possibly, but I think the question is, you know, to, to what extent would, the, would those resources need to go? Um, you know, I, I think there's a bit of a misconception. Like, going forwards, there's certainly going to be a bit of a tightening of the belt at Canada Soccer, but the reason for that is that over the past couple of years, they've spent, like, an unprecedented amount of money uh, as far as this federation is concerned. There's about $50 million that's gone on both national teams combined in 2021 and 2022. We've never seen anything like that in Canadian soccer before, right? And there were reasons for that. Part of it was that COVID made everything very expensive, a lot of travel, a lot of you know protocols and, and things of that nature. And then part of it was was chasing the 2022 World Cup, which you know became a huge goal, obviously, for the program to really accelerate the program and take it forwards. And really, no expense was spared to get to that tournament. And so now there's there's some consequences of that, um, and it's probably not going to be the same over the next few years in terms of what's available and what they can do. Uh, and I think that certainly frustrated Herdman and, you know, there was a standard that he'd got used to that, that maybe wasn't going to be the case uh, going forward. So I, I think that, you know, that certainly has played into it. But I also think part of it is just kind of that, that, that soccer, right? When, you're, when you've gone five and a half years, it does sometimes get to a point where you feel uh, a bit of fatigue in the job and you maybe start to see the limitations um, more than kind of the opportunities and possibilities that are still in front of the team. And, and I think those are pretty massive going into, obviously, a home World Cup in three years' time. When you look at who might take over uh, this massive opportunity to coach Canadian national team, how big is the pool start for you? Uh, is there a front runner already? And how difficult might this be if you're mentioning the fact that the budget might be smaller and you want to pay a coach, but you might not have as much money as they would be looking for? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Like the first thing is Canada soccer doesn't have a permanent general secretary right now, which is probably the biggest concern in this whole situation to me is like who's leading this process. Um, I think there's a big leadership void at the federation right now that needs to be solved. If, if you can do that, and obviously they don't have a great deal of time to do that, I actually think people are going to be pleasantly surprised about how many, how much interest there is in this job. I think it's on paper a much more attractive job than, than people might expect. I understand the frustrations with the Federation, the problems over the past couple of years, and obviously that is going to be a factor, but I think a lot of people are going to see Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and this talented young squad, the opportunity to, to you know, be a co-host of the World Cup in three years' time and, and what that could look like and, and be really excited about the prospects. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. I, I think there are a lot of talented Canadian coaches working in this country and working elsewhere. I'd personally love to see one of those get an opportunity. I think you look at the recent World Cup and teams like Japan, Australia, um, that overachieved and they did it with homegrown coaches who really understand the country, the player pool, um, and know how to get the best out of that. But then I'm sure there'll be some interesting names internationally as well that, that maybe throw their hat in the ring. And there are a few kind of specialists in international soccer out there that, that could be interesting too. 
Justin and I were kicking around the idea that, you know, this decision really affects somebody like Alfonso Davies quite significantly. Would would you ever think that the players might have a little bit of input or maybe during the interview period to be involved in such a massive decision that impacts them uh, in their careers so significantly? You would think so. That's another, I think, interesting part of this is that, you know, one kind of key factor that has it's felt like it's held Canada back as they've kind of gone to the next level and played at a World Cup and played in the Nations League final is, is just Alfonso Davies hasn't played at his best. Um, and that's got to, got to be a real priority, I think, in this coaching search is finding someone who has a real plan to build around Alf- Alfonso. And what I'd also say is to, to make Alfonso and others around him um, kind of the leaders of this team. I, I think that was one thing where Herdman always leaned on kind of the more senior players um, you know, some of the guys who had been around the program longer to, to really kind of build his culture. And, and maybe it's now time as some of those guys step away. Obviously, Atiba Hutchinson's retired. Um, maybe it's now time to hand the keys over a little bit more to Davies and David and Buchanan and, and guys like this to, to really set the future and the culture of this team. So in terms of their level of direct involvement, that, that's a really good question. Uh, again, it will be easier to answer if we knew who was kind of leading this process in the first place. But you would think that they would have some kind of, of input for sure. Is that the only real level lever that we know to pull when it comes to the relationship between Herdman and Davies that, you know, Herdman looked to the senior guys instead of letting, you know, Davies maybe being more of a vocal point uh, in the club. Like uh, why didn't it not seem to work between those two guys? Yeah. I, I mean, what, what I would judge most of all is, is kind of the on pitch side of it. And I just never felt they, fully clicked in terms of how they wanted to use Davies. Davies has always made it pretty clear, or at least Herdman has said he's made it clear, that he wants to play in a more attacking position for Canada than he does for for his club where he plays in defence. They tried that. They tried a number of different things. It it just looked kind of very scattered at times in in terms of the approach to getting the best out of Davies. You know, he plays so many different positions at the World Cup. It, it was a, sim- a similar thing in the summer where they were moving him around the field, trying to find something that, that just kind of clicked, and it, and it never really did. Uh, and there's been some speculation and, you know, how how much truth there is to this is is up for debate, but maybe maybe that that tr- started to, to wear on players a little bit. Um, you know, not just Davies, but the guys who felt that, you know, the qualification run was fantastic, but now we've got to this higher level and, and tactically there are things that are leaving a little bit to be desired. So, you know, whether that was a factor and in, in maybe the team not quite feeling like it had the same level of spirit and momentum behind it this year as it did, you know, in that qualification run, but that could be the case. Uh, chatting with Oliver Platt of One Soccer. Uh, so I, my theory is that only Canada or only Canadians rates Herdman. Uh, I, I understand that's like said with a level of ignorance, uh, but is that possible that like, you know, he, he showed up at the World Cup and he wanted to make a bit of a splash and he flirted with New Zealand and he we heard talk about him going to, you know, maybe he's coaching the championship in England or something like that. Like, he felt like he wanted to open himself up to everything and it's just, the you know, the club uh, that's the biggest in Canada, which is the country that knows him best, decided to give him a lot of money. Is it possible that only Canada or Canadians or Canadian clubs really see the value in John Herdman? Uh, I think that's probably some truth to that. I don't think I would see it necessarily as, as a knock on Herdman in, in that sense. I think it's more just international soccer. Like I think generally people kind of overrate um, the value that the top clubs see 
in international coaches. There's just a much lower level of entry to get onto a national team than there is to a top club. Um, like you can look across the top teams in international soccer, like England's Gareth Southgate would not have been in contention for Manchester United or for Liverpool or for, for any of those jobs when he got the England job. You know, Lionel Scaloni, the Argentina coach, had never coached at the senior level before he took that job. He went and won the World Cup. So I, I, there's just not the same level of attraction, I don't think, in the top international jobs because of kind of the sporadic nature of when you get to work with the players and the games. Uh, and as a result, I don't think there's quite the same value attached to them in terms of the achievements that uh, that you could have in international football that then put you in line for uh, potentially the, the top club club jobs. So on the flip side, TFC is going to get someone with uh, quite the pedigree, um, not in this type of play, but nonetheless, they're in last place in the MLS. They got nowhere to go but up. Um, is this the right move? Maybe a win-win for everybody. TFC gets someone in John Herman that has uh, an opportunity to take a team better than this year into next year, right? Um, but is he the right coach for this club and short-term goals that they might be setting with the addition of John Herman? I think there's definitely promise on, on both sides, but I think it's risky as well. You know, when, when you talk about the resources that Toronto FC have, obviously they should be much more considerable um, with MLSE than, than with Canada Soccer. But the problem is that, you know, about $20 million of that a year is tied up in, in Federico Bernadeschi and Lorenzo Insigne, who have been, you know, a disaster, mm-hmm. to be honest, so far as, as their designated players. So that for me is, is the first question and the most important question is what are you going to do with those guys? Um, can you find a way to make it work? Can you get the best out of them? Or, or do you need to get rid of them? And if so, how? Because, I, you know, Insigne in particular, he's on 15 million a year. There's no one else in the world who's going to be willing to pay him that. Um, so that is a real headache that I think Toronto FC still has to deal with. I'd be very interested and maybe we'll hear at the press conference today what their kind of plan and, and approach is for that going into the off-season. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's there's big risk where Herdman's con- concerned here, not just in making that transition to club soccer, which is very different, but what he's going to inherit at Toronto FC and, and the challenge of kind of sorting through all of that. Is Bill Manning the right guy for TFC? Uh, I think a great majority of the fan base would suggest probably not, and then that's probably... A, a really interesting one to watch, I think, going into this offseason is, you know, does there need to be change there um, at the top of the club? Bill Manning's got, you know, tied up in a lot of things at MLSC, the Argos, the World Cup in 2026. Um, so I think his kind of value to the organization goes beyond the, the job he's done at CFC, and that might protect him a little bit. Um, but I, I think, look, to, to put it bluntly, the the roster build over the past couple of years has been one of, if not the worst in MLS history. There's been an enormous amount of money spent for absolutely zero success. So no other president, I don't think, would, would come through that. Uh, we'll leave you on this one. Um, Herdman's legacy with Canada soccer, what is it? I think, look, he's, he's given us 12 years, and, and whether you agree with every decision and agree with every stance he's taken... Um, and he can be very outspoken and public at times. I, I think there's going to be a great deal of gratitude felt for someone who you can't question poured everything he had into both the women's national team and the men's national team, and he pushed us forward, so there's no question about it. You know, we're, we're in a, a very different world of Canadian soccer nowadays compared to, to when he started with the women's national team. Um, as much as there are massive challenges and a lot of negativity around the sport at times, 
you know, I don't think that tells the full story. Things have never been better in Canadian soccer. We've got so much to look forward to, so much talent in this country. We've got a lot to sort through to really capitalize on that and make the most of it. Um, but the sport in this country, in terms of the possibility and opportunity that's in front of us, uh, has never been in the better place. And, and Herdman has played a huge role, again, on both sides, women and men's, um, in creating those possibilities and, and really pushing for higher standards and pushing these teams forward. So I think as, as much as it felt maybe like time and maybe like things had, had come to a little bit of an end, um, there'll be a lot of gratitude to, to what he's done for, for the national teams in this country. Yeah, 100%. It is good, though, that it happened when it did because three years is going to go by fast. This country needs to get things sorted out if they're going to be able to be successful when co-hosting uh, a World Cup because a lot of work has to go into the next three years and a lot of improvements need to be made uh, if it's going to look like something that we want it to look like. Uh, this was a lot of fun catching up with you this morning. Oliver, uh, all the best uh, continuing to break down this story. And, uh, yeah, we'll chat again down the road. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. It's Oliver Platt of One Soccer. I, I wonder if, in the end, Herdman regrets this move. Like, it's going to be... Like, what, what's what's the scene when Canada's walking out, armband on Alfonso mm-hmm. Davies? Uh, I don't know. I guess they'll be playing in Toronto in the first game. Uh, BMO Field. Uh, He'll know like, BMO like Field that, well. That is, that, the, that is the pinnacle, is it not? Like, that would be a moment. I mean, I, I'm, not a, I'm not like big soccer. I like soccer. I want to be a part of it in any way I possibly could, and this guy could have been coaching it, and now he's got to sort through the rubble at TFC and try to get this. And again, he's going to be paid handsomely, and he's a professional, and life could be a lot worse than coaching TFC, especially when the expectation is, hey, you got to turn a 15th place club into something better than that. Uh, 15 out of 15, at least in the Eastern Conference. Um, like, it's not all bad, but man, that's going to be... I wonder what will be going through his head when Canada walks out in that moment. I mean, it's the pinnacle of sport, right? The FIFA World Cup, it's in your country. You're the team that everyone's going to be talking about. Other countries are coming here to learn about this team, right? You're the host nation. How much did we spend on wanting Australia to do well at the Women's World Cup, right? Because it was a special story. They were an inspiration to their country. There's going to be a lot more attention on Canada soccer because they're hosting, well, joint hosting the World Cup. It's it's such a special, it doesn't happen often. It's such a special thing. And you, yeah, you gave up that opportunity. But I come back to, man, how bad must it have been? How were things souring so severely that you're going to step off that stage, as you mentioned, into the rubble? I mean, it's going to be a good challenge for him. As Oliver set out, like there's some players here that what are you going to do with them? And it's kind of a failed experiment at times. Some of these massive signings that they've had, who's going to be paying 15 mil, just reinstate the vape rule and everything's good. Like there's going to be some major, major questions. But on the same side, Canada soccer doesn't even have the infrastructure right now to be hiring, right? Is There's a lot of question marks on both sides of this equation. But maybe in the end, I think, I think we could predict or we could anticipate maybe a happy solution for everyone. But your idea that maybe Herdman regrets in the end for me is is just the picture of Canada even having a win or some success at the World Cup. Like if they, they win a game or two, they advance through, this country's going to be absolutely 
unhinged. Yeah, I and mean, you're not the face of that he anymore. May, he may not feel that though for another a thousand days, right? Like it is a long way mm-hmm. away. As oh, much as I is. said it's going to go short, like he's he's got money to make and stress to de you know detach himself from uh, when it comes to this country and getting mm-hmm. to not only friendlies and ramp up competition, but the actual competitions that matter the most. I just I guess I just take solace in the fact that. We are not, like, this country, this federation is not in charge of what Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David are doing this precise moment. Like, they are at elite clubs doing elite things, growing, and this country's players continue to grow. I don't really worry about 2026 as much as I worry about 2030, 2034. Like, how much is the problems that that are happening right now going to affect the future? And, like... Guys who have options to play for different countries would be like, why would I play for a team that's in absolute shambles yeah. when I could be a part of this team when I can play for the United States or I can play for whatever other team might be available to them? I think it's going to affect the future more than the present because I do think some of it is a bit of excuse making. Mm-hmm. A lot of these players get to play high level all the time. And I get that team is important and all that. But like Alfonso Davies can be dropped into a game and have an impact. I believe that. Tactically, yes, there are definitely things that are left to be desired. But if you have someone that can take care of the house and then inject these massive talents into that get to be groomed and get to continue training and working and getting better in more advantageous places, I think you can figure out a way. But if we're hurting the next generation because of what's going on right now, what a shame that would be because Canada should be at every World Cup moving forward. There should be no excuse to not be there anymore. That's got to be the reality and I don't know if that's going to be the case if this this uh, federation continues to, mm-hmm. you know, hurt itself, eat itself. I mean, it's supposed to be a stepping stone forward, and you just hope it's not a stepping stone backwards or even laterally right now. But holding pattern to figure out who's going to take over, who's going to take over many roles at Canada Soccer, and if they can shore up some of these issues that they've been facing on both the women and the men's side. Um, let's shift back to baseball. Blue Jays with a much-needed win last night. Looking to build on that tonight against the Washington Nationals with Jose Barrios on the mound. We'll chat with Carlos Pena, former MLB first baseman and current MLB network analyst, a guy that knows a little bit about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and his approach. We can definitely get into that. Is too much thinking, not enough thinking, too many voices, not enough voices. What's going on with Vlad? But it looks like maybe there's a little bit of, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Are you seeing it, Justin? A little bit of light? I have a good last four games for Vlad, okay. right? Let's build on that. Yeah. Uh, Carlos Pena after the break, and then we'll have Sherman Hamilton in studio, TF Canada Lab Day, which will be at 9.30 a.m. here on Sportsnet and Sportsnet. Uh, now you can check that out, and he'll be in studio to help us tee up a massive game at the World Cup. All that's next on the Fan Morning Show.